You're now plugged in to the Delphi Podcast. Hey everyone, Tommy here, and I just hopped off an incredible AI conversation with Jake Bruckham, the founder of CoinFund. We started off the conversation talking about large language models like ChatGPT, and whether these models are truly human and sentient intelligent, or whether they're just statistically finishing our conversations based on the words that they already have. It was pretty cool to hear Jake's views on what he thinks the limits of LLMs are. We spent a lot of time talking about the alignment issue in AI, or the idea that we need to steer AI in the right direction so these models don't end up killing us in a Terminator-like fashion. He discussed his views on OpenAI's more guarded approach, where a couple dozen people are hoping to solve the alignment issue, versus other models like Stability and others, where the alignment issue could be solved publicly in a transparent way, potentially using blockchains. Jake shared his thoughts on the intersection of crypto and AI, both the alignment issue, but also on data sovereignty as well. We spoke about moats and value capture in AI. Jake also shared a bit of his utopian and dystopian views. And I think one of my favorite parts was the first 20 minutes where Jake spent defining intelligence and whether or not these models are truly alive. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, it's Tommy and welcome back to the podcast. Today I have on Jake Bruckham, who is the founding partner of CoinFund, one of the earliest crypto funds. Jake has been in the weeds on pretty much every major tech movement years ahead of people from crypto to AI to ZK to Urbit to everything in between. Um, I think he's the perfect guest to do a podcast and chat AI on. Jake, how are you? Uh, thanks, Tom. Nice intro. I'm doing well, hanging out in Brooklyn this summer, um, so having fun. Jake, the bar is high after that intro. I mean, every new tech movement, you have to be first to now. It's, just, <laughs> it's stressful. Oh, uh, man. I, you know, so like my story is that I, you know, both of my parents were um, computer engineers. So we had a computer in our house in like 1990. Uh, I got on the internet on my uncle's NYU connection uh, on IRC in like 1994. So I've been, yeah, been pretty early to all the things, including blockchain and these days driving an electric vehicle and stuff like that. Um, and of course, been following AI. But uh, by the way, there's like all these other decade on me, Jake. too. <laughs> That's probably I, I, true. I, I remember doing AOL with like the dial up and the annoying noise, but. You sound like you were way ahead of there. That well, was, that's did, you, did you ever see Prodigy like back in the day? Do you know even know oh, what that is? No, I didn't. No, so, no. So, so it's... Prodigy was like it's a like a like a mid to late '90s kind of AOL competitor where you would sign up for an internet service, you'd pay them like a monthly fee, and then you'd like sign in through your you know your phone modem and all that, and you'd get the screen, and the screen says like, "What do you want to do on the internet today?" Do you want to chat? Do you want to shop? Do you want to get stock quotes or whatever? Right. But it was all just like the whole internet was integrated into one application. Wow. It, I mean, I guess it didn't pan out, right? Or No, no. I mean, <laughs> it's long gone. Yeah. No, yeah. No, it's just, it's funny. Like, I guess at the time, just AOL just crushed them. What was the, what was the turnout there? Um, yeah, I, I don't even remember. I think they probably got bought by someone at some point but yeah it just people didn't people unbundled um the internet services and they decentralized them and it's like you know but the idea was like we'll make the internet this new technology like really easy to use with a single screen damn I, I remember arguing with my parents over having like the unrestricted aol account but i had no reason to even want or use that <laughs> that's the first probably memory i have nice jake you're here to chat ai um, you have investments in the space. You spend a lot of time here. I personally have been spending a lot of time here. So we have a lot to cover. I think I probably just want to start out with maybe just like a broad level setting kind of question. I mean, I, you could take this a lot of different ways, but why has AI been of so much interest to you? Like, why are you allocating your time, your capital, like, you know, your vision and the way you want the world to go? Like, what is selling you on, on that right now? Yeah. So I'm not like, so just like one disclaimer for me is I'm not like deep into AI. I'm not an AI expert. But that being said, I did study mathematics and computer science, and I've known about neural networks for a long time, and I know about some of the math that goes into that. And so I know a little bit, you know, to be, you know, I know enough to be a little bit dangerous. Um, 
And AI has been just kind of a general interest topic for me as a as an innovation technologist, as a, someone who just looks at frontier and exciting new uh, technologies. And um, like while I haven't like worked directly in the field, I know a bunch of people um, from the field. In fact, about ten years ago, I actually had a startup with my friend Nikolai, where we were doing. Machine learning on brainwave data. So we actually had this like device that could read um, some of your EEG and then used machine learning An to early try Neuralink. To... Yeah, ex- exactly. Um, idea was like try to try to like glean some sentiment from people based on their brainwaves. Like, do you like a movie? Do you hate a movie? You know, are you nervous? Are you scared? Like that kind of thing. And we actually got pretty far, but. What has been fascinating me over the last couple of years is just this like insane progress that people have been making, uh, you know, and obviously OpenAI amongst those people um, in large foundation models, right? And um, I don't consider myself an AI investor. I think I think people who are kind of coming in and saying um, we want to invest in AI now probably should have started doing that, you know, five, six, seven years ago. But what I am super interested in uh, as a Web3 person is that I believe that the pipeline that creates AI, AI models, AI technologies, and AI products, and all the computation associated with that should be open. And I think that the most compelling tool to open up that pipeline is Web3 like technologies, Web3 networks, blockchains, uh, DAOs, and, and, and so on. And so... When I take an interest in AI from kind of CoinFund's perspective, I'm really taking an interest in the intersection of AI and Web3, and that intersection is pretty early. There's only a handful of companies today that that are operating in that area. That's really helpful, Jake. I want to get into the crypto AI overlap, but I first want to dive into some AI things just to set the stage a little bit so we could get a little more specific there. Let's start with large language models, right? Like ChatGPT, Google's Bard, Baird, Bard, however you pronounce it. I did a bunch of research this weekend and I really liked uh, Stephen Wolfram's post from Wolfram Alpha. Definitely recommend people read it. The The main takeaway for me was like, you know, basically the large language models are just continuing text that's already there, right? Like it has context, it can process all of this in a non-sequential manner, but it's not human, it's not a Terminator, it's not AGI. Do you have any views on like the discrepancy in people's opinions between, you know, ChatGPT and it becoming a Terminator or it becoming sentient? Like, do you think people just have that wrong? Well, I think there's there's a spectrum here where on one side of it, people are really discounting what LLMs are doing. They're saying like they're not doing anything intelligent at all. They're simply statistical models that kind of the way that some people phrase that they output answer shaped outputs. <laughs> so that's like one, that's a very conservative, I guess, like side of the spectrum. The very like um, progressive side of the spectrum says we have just kind of created the basis for um, artificial general intelligence. And obviously people define what that means in different ways, but, but the kind of the high level definition is something like, um, uh, you know, computer software that can perform human level work, you know, and, and, uh, and that group of people tends to be more on the side of, you know, maybe we're not quite at super intelligence right now, but we see a path to super intelligence from here that is far more aggressive and short term than every estimate that came beforehand. Um, and I think I fall somewhere like in between. <laughs> As most people will, you know, I'm not like an AI doomer. I don't not, I do not think that AI is um, like super dangerous to the point that everyone is going to be extinct like anytime soon. But I also really disagree with the idea that like that these things aren't intelligent and they aren't and that they're just statistics, like whatever that means. Like, I think there's a lot more to what's going on in chat GPT than what some of the naysayers kind of give it credit for. I think that's really good framing. Hey, 
I don't know. The, the weird thing for me is like, it is hard to figure out like what that intelligence, like how to figure out if it is intelligent or not, right? Like, I don't know, years ago, I watched that AlphaGo documentary, you know, where Google trains the computer to play, you know, Go or whatever. And at the end of the movie, it like starts rewriting its own code. And that kind of, I was like, holy shit, like it's statistics and now it's alive. Like, is there any way do you think that we'll be able to tell if ChatGPT is like statistically continuing our conversations or if it's actually figuring out like intelligence? Well, okay. So this is, <laughs> this is a big topic, um, but let's dive in here because this is like super interesting. So a lot of my intuition comes you know, on this point comes from an article called the scaling hypothesis, uh, by Gwern. And in particular, there is a section in that article called why pre-training works. And if you, um, if you want to get like some interesting intuition about like this idea of predicting the next word and, and what that actually does, like you should absolutely go read that article. And basically what it says is the exercise of making a neural network predict that next word doesn't just create statistically like probable outputs for the model, but it actually like emerges intelligence in the model to some extent. And uh, so let me, let me get a little bit more specific. So here's a cool example that might give you some intuition on this. Imagine that you are reading a detective novel and you're at the very last sentence of the novel, which says, and then the murderer was discovered to be blank. And the model's goal is to take like the novel, right, as input and to complete that blank. In other words, to identify who the murderer was. Well, you can kind of intuitively see that in order to be really good at that, the model actually kind of has to know what's going on in the story. And what Gwern's article describes is the process by which that mechanism is built up within a neural network where it goes from just like kind of first recognizing, you know, letters and, um, and tokens to then recognizing words then recognizing grammar to then recognizing sentences to then recognizing <clears throat> ideas within those sentences and then to, to actually recognize like lo- the broad logic uh, of like the input. And there's various ways like that, you know, novel kind of example, that's one way to build intuition, but there's, there's various ways that you can like test chat GPT to see if various kinds of emerging intelligence is happening. One really interesting example of emerging intelligence is the fact that chat GPT can speak multiple languages and can translate between them. This is very interesting because there's a, you know, there's probably like a fairly large team at companies like Google that for like decades, you know, has worked on machine learning that specifically translates one language into another language. And then you have this like general large model that simply um, has emerged that ability. And that's like kind of crazy, right? Um, right. And, and, and like, it's not just that, um, it's not just that it can translate between languages. It's like, like I'm learning Spanish. And one of the things about being a Spanish learner is that there's a bunch of like regional vocabulary that is valid in Mexico, but it's not valid in Spain. That's valid, you know, like every country has its own, like certain words in Spanish that are like unique to it. And what you could do is you can have chat GPT not only like correct your Spanish, but you can ask it like, hey, like if I said this phrase in Mexico, would people understand me? Or like, what is the connotation of such and such a word, you know, in such and such a place? And it actually does a really good job of, of doing that. It's like an amazing tool for people who are learning languages. That is really cool. I mean, I just to jump in, I mean, I was reading yeah. one AI post online and it was talking, it was giving me like an example on how transformers like work versus the old way of doing it. And mm-hmm. it's exactly what you said, right? Like in the past, every word was processed sequentially, but yep. with transformers, every word has a number. So like they're all ordered, they could be processed in parallel, but more importantly, like there's context on the words around it. So like if you go English to French, like some French words are masculine versus feminine. So it actually has the context to get it right. I thought that was super cool. 
Absolutely. Um, and, and yes, like the intuition of transformers is that it parallelizes kind of the input and it pays special attention to kind of the words and the input that really matter. Um, and you can see why that is almost like required to translate stuff. Because if you, you know, if you ever gone through the exercise of trying to translate a sentence in one language to another language by going like word by word, the limitation of that should be obvious because different languages just simply don't express things in the same way as other languages. So that algorithm is often impossible to carry out, right? But so you kind of have to like feed in your whole idea first and then you have to like reformulate it in a new language. And that's essentially, I guess, like what the transformer architecture like helps it to do in that, in that case. Um, Maybe to mention Tom, just to, Another point of emerging behavior, it's um, theory of mind, right? There's actually an p- academic paper that came out on this a few months ago where they said, you know, some of the earlier GPT models, they didn't have a theory of mind, but as a, I think as a GPT-3 or something like that, they did. What does that mean exactly? Well, theory of mind is the ability to, of an entity to reason about what other entities are reasoning about. The academic example is like, imagine I, um, you know, I give you like a hypothetical scenario that like we have, I don't know, two, two boxes, A and B, and I have like a cat and I put the cat in box A and the box is opaque. And then Tom leaves the room and I take the cat out and I put it into box B without Tom seeing that. And then Tom comes back and then I ask ChatGPT, like, where do you think Tom will think and GPT will say, well, he'll think that it's in box A. And then he'll say, why do you think that? And he'll say, well, because Tom didn't see you put the cat into box B. And so most likely he still thinks it's, it's in the first box. And so this is an example of like a language model, like understanding what might be going through Tom, your mind in such that's a scenario. Pretty, that's crazy. Now, I, I remember reading like a Harvard business school study on like EQ with kids or something. And I don't even think kids could reason about other people until they're like a certain age, right? So, yeah, it's not directly right, applicable, right. but it is just really weird to think about. Absolutely. And I'll give you one last thing, um, which I, I find this feature of ChatGPT like super cool. And the feature is that you can you can ask it to to explain its reasoning about things, and it'll do a really good job. So here's the Here's an example I picked up from one of these blog posts about LMs. Um, you, you tell ChatGPT, you say, the violin fell on the bowling ball and it broke. What broke? And ChatGPT will say, um, the violin. And then you'll say, ChatGPT, why do you think that? And it'll explain to you that like violins are generally you know, softer, more fragile than bowling balls. And so chances are it was the thing that broke. So it's 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 showing you like logical reasoning. And then some people have pushed back on that and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. But it's just like giving you an answer shaped output after the fact. Well, there's ways of also asking ChatGPT that same question so that it could show its reasoning first and then give you the answer. And what that reasoning shows is logic. It's a common sense programmed into a computer program. Um and that is actually really, really cool, right? It's like, the, I don't the care. Is that logic is intelligence, right? Well, the point is, I don't care if it's like a hallucination or a quote-unquote answer-shaped output, because if it's logical, then it's sort of self-evident that it's, you know, that it's correct. So I don't care if it's answer-shaped. I don't care if it's statistical. I just care that it's like actually logically correct. Do you see what I'm saying? No, no, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I'm trying to figure out like when the masses will realize whether or not it's alive. Well, this brings us to another like interesting thought experiment, which is, and I've actually like ran this poll on Twitter, but basically, so I don't believe that LLMs are like conscious or sentient, like in any way. I do believe that they are, you know, computer programs and they're, they are quite statistical, um, but there's something about simulating intelligence that, you know, to me, intuitively 
gets us closer to intelligence. And there's something about simulating sentience that gets us closer to sentience. And so the question that I asked on Twitter, I said, if like something that, like if we have a scale from zero to one, where zero is like no sentience whatsoever, you're a rock. And one is something that is like sentient, like a person, then in creating a really, really accurate model or representation of sentience as we do with you know things like LLMs, how far toward actual sentience have we gone, right? And so you might say, well, I, I don't think we've gone even like a little bit toward sentience. We're still very much at, at zero. And then there's other people who've said, no, 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 you actually have gone all the way. And I want to explore that view for a second. So why would people say that? Well, it's kind of for a philosophical reason. It's like, Tom, how do you know that I'm sentient? We don't really know that other human beings are sentient. Like we, we are around humans. They behave as if they are. Um, they, um, you know, if you ask them like different questions, they'll respond in a, in a sentient manner. Um, you know that you're sentient and because I'm a human being that is made, you know, similar to you, um, it's a reasonable assumption to think that, you know, I'm also sentient, but at the end of the day, this is a philosophical quandary for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years is that we don't actually, we can't actually prove that everybody else is sentient. And the thing that we actually use to 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 quote unquote know that other people are sentient is is there is a Turing test. It's like our interaction with them. And so, my, kind of the point of these people who have selected one on the, on the scale is is maybe that there's no difference in evaluating sentience in a human or evaluating sentience in a machine. The methodology is exactly the same. And there are humans today that actually believe they anthropomorphize LLMs and they actually believe that LLMs are, are sentient um, because they simulate sentience. So Jake, it, it actually is wild to think about though, because so basically what you're saying is that we have no way to figure out if other humans are alive. How could we possibly figure out if an LLM or an AI is alive other than the Turing test? It's a right, like there's this concept from philosophy called a philosophical zombie. Um, right. And, and kind of the point that I'm making is that, like, in actuality, when we evaluate whether a human ascension and whether, you know, a machine ascension, it would amount to the same test. And so, in some ways, like, the machine and the human pass the same test in some sense. They're both sentient, right? I guess the, the hard part for me, though, is like the context, right? Like I can't take an LLM and drive a Tesla and I, I can't take it and, and go play, load it into a robot and play tennis with it. Like there's like, uh, it's very narrow, right? Is there is there a way to splice that and say, hey, you can only do this thing. It can't be sentient. Well, but 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 I think like AI people will kind of disagree with you that they're narrow because the whole push has been toward generalized models. Like like in in the AI field, we've gone from doing machine learning that solves specific tasks to going to large models that do all tasks, right? And even even right now, like there's this distinction between LLMs, which are for language, and let's say like generative AI, which is for images. But in many ways, like those models work the same way, except like one model works on pixels and one model works on words. Now, what you can what you can see in the future is that instead of predicting the next word, we might be predicting the next bit. And that could potentially create models that are like that will take as input not just language or, or images, but they could take in like sound inputs or video inputs or, or like really any, any, any kind of information and their outputs similarly could be any kind of information modality as well. And in fact, you, you see that today because 
GPT-4 can, can actually take in image inputs and Google Bard can actually create image outputs to some extent. Now in the future, like these models can take in everything and output everything as well. So I would call that like omnimodal. That is crazy. I mean, when you first mentioned the sentence, I was I thought you were going down a path of like putting all these different models together in one place for like an AGI feeling. But it sounds like what you're talking about is is kind of one model to rule them all very deeper level on a per pixel basis. And that's, that's exactly crazy. like what I'm saying, like a kind of in response to your to your query, which is that like what is intelligence? Well, eventually intelligence is going to be the aggregation across like like of intelligent activity across all of these modalities. This brings us to a an interesting juncture on like the speed of AI development versus you know slowing it down and kneecapping it and doing alignment and safety research. I'd be curious where you stand on on this topic. Like, do you think that we should let the researchers run wild? Like, let these AIs have full access, full power, or are you of the opinion that we should slow down, kneecap them, and, and kind of wait to have a better solution? Yeah, I'm, well, as a Web3 person, I believe, like my priors, my hypothesis would be that open innovation is better. Now, there's some confirmatory information in the market about that, right? Like we have had people like Stability put out extremely open models. And what we've seen is just like the innovation curve around that has gone exponentially. Um upward right and you know it's like in january of 2022 dolly came out and then in august stable diffusion came out and that was like a differential of six seven months whereas in previous times like you know it would take years to create an open source model that was that was equivalent in power um to something proprietary we live in a very different world um and now there's there's even been some Articles that have been published uh, or like leaked from from Google, which are basically saying, "Look, there's there's not actually a ton of moat to the models themselves, and most of the innovation that's happening is happening in open source. Like the big tech companies are, you know, they have a lot of compute and they have very good people, but what we're also seeing in the market is like when you open these things up, there's a lot of creativity." that happens that begin to optimize uh, what's going on. And one example of that is, you know, like there's a project I like called GPT for all, which is a, a model. Uh, they took a, basically like an inferior model to GPT. Um, then they, then they um, kind of fine tuned it on GPT outputs and got performance similar to GPT while having you know, a fraction of the of the parameters that are needed, right? And um, there's many examples of like like researchers doing creative stuff like that. And so, kind of at you know at a high level, like one of the reasons I'm a Web three AI sort of proponent is because I think that AI will benefit, like as a technology, will move faster and will be better solved if it's open. And I've said this before, and like elsewhere but like to me right what's happening right now is that there's relatively few places in the world that can progress the state of the art of llms and every such place um has this idea that like as long as they get to you know that state of the art first they'll be able to protect the rest of the world by keeping it closed or something like that um, or they will be the ones who, um, you know, solve the alignment problem. But what Sam Altman, you know, says that he thinks like the alignment problem should be solved by OpenAI, what he's implicitly kind of saying is that he believes that the alignment problem should and will be solved by like tens of people, private kind of workers of these of these companies. And my position is that the best way to solve alignment is to have thousands of people work on this problem or have 10,000s of people work on this problem. They will get to much faster to the right answer and to the um to to the best alignment versus if we leave them to companies um 
that are small and have you know particular incentive structures that might work against that. Jake, to double click into your first point there, like so you just said that there's not much of a moat with the foundational models. Do you believe that the large incumbents, you know, the open AIs or I don't know, the Microsofts of the world, if that applies here, you know, let me know if not. Do you think that they're kind of like LARPing that this is super dangerous when in reality they're just trying to figure out a way to build a moat? Or am I thinking about that the wrong way? Um, well, I I think like I think like the cynical view is that if you know someone like Sam goes to Congress and says, listen, we need to issue licenses to um you know, for anyone who's working on an LLM, basically, a lot of people interpret that as him trying to build a competitive regulatory moat for open AI. Um, I don't know if that's what's actually going through his mind, but it's one sort of proposition that, you know, fits the facts. Do I think that, um, I mean, I, I think that like governments will start to pay attention to to AI. I mean, they already are. Um, and I think that um, there's some chance that those kinds of moats could be could be had, but that wouldn't be like my preferred outcome. My preferred outcome would, would just be like um, having kind of a more realistic view of what these models are capable of and, and maybe like monitoring the progress, but generally having open innovation that solves the hard problems that are associated with this tech. Um, in terms of moat for big companies, you know, I think like if you look at the way that chat GPT and the, and the open AI API have been kind of commercialized so far, what you'll notice is that it's a lot of people building like quite thin software layers on top of this model. And I think those software layers you know, they're mostly SaaS. I think it's going to be extremely hard to differentiate them. Like, like it's usually, you know, when these products differentiate from each other, it's precisely on the fact that they have a different LLM that they're either like training themselves or fine tuning themselves. That that LLM works on proprietary data. Fine. It's not available to everyone. Right. And that's generally how those modes are kind of built. We could dig into that a little bit more in a little bit more detail if you want. Um, but the people who are kind of building these like thin SaaS products on top of the API, I don't think, um, I don't think those things are very valuable or can retain value. I'm with you. I want to double click on moats, but I want to go back first and just close out the, the open source kind of discussion here. This is probably a huge rabbit hole, but figuring out alignment globally for AI versus open AI, figuring it out with a couple dozen people is obviously sounds fantastic, but I mean, how does that work? Is it, is it millions of people like exposing preferences or exposing their data to like reduce biases? Or is it like, you know, dozens of like legitimate companies reviewing the models and, and the data that's fed into it? Like how exactly do you solve alignment on a, on a broad scale? Well, I think that if you just kind of look at the the way that the way this is likely to play out, right? So like I think the way that OpenAI wants to play it is to say, look, we are the best performing um LLM assistant and we just launched plugins. And what we want is like everyone essentially going through us. And that means that like right now, OpenAI is poised to suck in everybody's private data, like more data than you give to Google. And you give a lot of, excuse me, you give a lot of data to Google. And so you could see it like, like OpenAI being that one assistant that sort of travels with you as you use one application or another. And by this methodology of plugins, it sort of like knows everything that you're doing. So if you're like ordering food on, you know, caviar or whatever you do that through your llm and now OpenAI knows about that if you're ordering an uber you're doing it through your llm potentially uh if you're working on some kind of math problem and you're trying to solve it and you're getting ideas of how to do that from your llm like like everything that you essentially end up doing 
on the internet kind of goes through that. That's one view of the world. And I think that's actually the the real AI apocalypse that we should be worried about when like one or two companies just learn absolutely everything about you because you cannot not use their LLM. Like in the same way, like like we can't really give up our iPhones today. Like in order to be competitive in the modern world, we have to have a smartphone. 10 years from now, in order to be competitive in the modern world at that time, you're going to have to have an LLM assistant. The alternative view to OpenAI and others, you know, kind of taking ownership of everyone's data is that your LLM assistant runs locally on your desktop and the data that it learns from you is self-sovereign, meaning you own it. And that is very much a Web3 view and a Web3 kind of primitive. And in fact, I would argue that self-sovereign data is the only Web3 primitive that even like really matters, uh, you know, in the scheme of things. And so today, it is the case that there are multiple open source LLMs that you can do this with. You can run it on your, you know, Mac uh, laptop uh, on the M1 GPU, um, and it works. And the only problem is that this that these particular ones today are a little bit less powerful than uh, GPT-4 and so on. But it, there's a lot of people who are projecting that the power of um, kind of open LLMs will eventually outpace the power of proprietary LLMs. And, and again, we're at CoinFund, we're funding a number of technologies that are making that, that happen as well. Companies like Jensen, who are doing decentralized training. Companies like Giza, who are putting uh, AI model outputs on the blockchain for smart contracts to use, you know, and, men, and many others. Jake, you shared a ton of good info. One point I want to take out of that, it seems like the conversation is pretty much around open AI versus stability. You mentioned Google. I mean, Google has pretty crazy amounts of data on the Web2 side. Now, if they have all, well, I mean, just existing data, then if they start sucking in our even more data to power its AI, like, I don't know, is, it, is there an argument here that Google's LLM or, or AI models could eclipse what we're seeing out of something like an open AI? I mean, I think people, I think the gap between Google and OpenAI seems to be closing pretty rapidly. Like, like you see OpenAI kind of taking their time with rolling out certain features and, and keeping them closed. And then Google comes out with Bard, I think around March, and suddenly it, um, it, it's free. It already has like plugins that you can use. It, it already integrates with Google search. Um, so there's... It seems like there's a lot of competitive vectors that Google can use to compete with folks like OpenAI. Um, but I'm not sure, like, again, like, it's really hard to tell right now whether um, kind of open models will be the thing or these, like, proprietary models w from Web2 giants will be the thing. But my hope is the, the former, right? So this might be a like a semi-technical question, at least for me, probably not for you. But when I was looking through the mid-journey explainer docs, uh, I think it was like the AI canons, May 16Z I was looking at, it, it kind of described how you train a model, right? Like, you know, you, you input all this data, you have a desired output, like let's say you input tons of pictures, you have this desired output, which is like a set picture. And over time, basically math, uh, and it's these parameters, you know, million parameters, billion parameters, whatever, until you get to a model that, you know, drives your desired outcome, right? For when, when we're discussing large language models or open ones versus the one that lives on your computer, it doesn't seem like you could, or I mean, conceptually, it doesn't seem like you can ever train something to be your own personality unless it's only trained on your own data and not others, right? Is there some argument where people would prefer the personal assistant that's more specific? Or do you think, the large open models could um, get to that level of granularity. I mean, for I think person. both architectures will support that. I think you definitely want LLM, like you definitely want an assistant who knows about you, who knows your preferences, who knows what you're likely to do or how you're likely to word the email. Um, there's a lot of 
customization value in that. And for sure, that's going to be one of those things that will be creating, you know, not so much a moat as, as it'll be like more difficult to switch away, you know, from a personalized assistant versus a generic one, right? Like there's many ways in which that assistant will be convenient. Um, but I don't, I don't think that any, like, like each one of those architectures, both like the monolithic open AI, you know, proprietary approach and the local language model approach, I think they, both of them could support customization. It's just that like, who owns that data? Um, and by the way, like one of the cool things that people have been able to do over the last year is take, um, for example, a stable diffusion model and fine tune it on like images of yourself so that you can start to use like your own, uh, you know, your own image as a character in, in AI output. Moving on to moats, I think that's a pretty important point to talk about. I mean, you already mentioned some of your views on the moats between incumbents. How do you think through moats for AI startups? Probably through, I think like the most interesting moats would be kind of advancing the state of the art of like the infrastructure itself. So maybe like for AI startups, that would mean training your own model that works better or like you know, having a set of methodologies that like work better. Like for example, Photoshop has Adobe, Adobe Firefly. They recently launched this um, um, feature called generative fill, which by the way is like super fun if you're a Photoshop user to uh, try it out. And those things are trained on their uh, like Adobe's own stock photo set. So I think the moat is kind of like the methodology of the models but it's also the proprietary data that you know certain companies have, but not others. Maybe like a more salient example of that would be like there's a there's a view that LLMs um, could replace lawyers to some extent, right? Because you can load in legal forms, they can actually analyze them, um, they could generate legal forms, um, but the the quality of those analyses and those um, those outputs will be better if you fine tune an LLM on, let's say, like the proprietary forms of a big, well known, successful law firm that has been doing this for a hundred years, right? And so there's a view that, like, um, in the future, there's going to be a lot of like taking a foundation model or kind of like a base LLM. And then fine-tuning it on proprietary data and creating a product that works better in some area, like legal forms. Right. Um, so I think that those seem to be right now kind of the most compelling moats. And I want to mention maybe like one other thing. There is still a significant barrier to doing technology in this in this space. Um like AI is complex, it's mathematical, and most importantly, it's when you're training models, like it's kind of a dark art of how to how to do that correctly. It's not a deterministic algorithm. It's something that people learn over time with experience. And then when you go over to like the Web3 AI side, what's interesting is that a lot of those technologies are actually de not dependent on AI at all for success. They're actually dependent on zero-knowledge proofs. Because it is by virtue of zero knowledge um, that these like off-chain computations essentially come to the blockchain. And zero knowledge is also a pretty deep tech area. And by the way, like the number of people who could do like AI math and ZK math at the same time, you know, it's there's very few. It's very small. It's very, very small. Um, so companies like Jensen, who I mentioned, uh, they're like one of the few teams like operating on the intersection of those two very hard deep technologies. Yeah, no, that just the the people talent is definitely a moat. The one thing that got me interesting is you keep mentioning that like users will want to use their own data to train models, companies will want to use data to train models. Like I mean, just thinking through that, like, is Google going to let me export all my data? Is Telegram going to like sure you could like raw export it, but when they figure this out, 
like won't they want to sort of I don't know maybe permission that so that you use their own AI chatbots and pay for it and things like that or do you think like consumers are just going to be able to take all of their information off the web to train these models? I mean, I hope I hope it's that. Um, like I've seen seen a product called Personal AI, which is this like idea that you can take some of your public social media data, like some of your tweets, some of your uh, blog posts, and things like that, and then fine tune a chatbot that kind of like talks and behaves like you in a in a manner that's like trying to be indistinguishable from you. Um, and so necessarily those kinds of things are going to have to use data that already exists. And of course, most of your data that exists, you know, you probably put in some third party, um, that you're going to have to retrieve. Um, and I also think that there's going to be a, a movement over, over time where people are like reclaiming data. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of that in web three today. Like for example, we have, a company called Demo, uh, which is helping users reclaim their electric vehicle data and other vehicle data. Uh, and then that data gets pulled into a data union and you could build some really, really cool applications on aggregated vehicle data. Like for example, you can build a insurance product um, for cars or you could, you could build like a product that prices different vehicles automatically based on its data parameters. This might be a lob of a question, but I mean, Web2 companies, Facebook, Google, everything is built off data. Do you think this move seriously hurts them? Like in the sense that, what? Like in the sense that Google loses some data from this? or I guess like if you have a Facebook, but people are permissioning what data they want to put on the platform, like in an urban style approach, like it seems like the arc you're describing is, is pretty negative for like data banks so that are the fang companies i think it today. does hurt them I, like maybe one thing we can point to is like look at apple in the current sort of big tech competition environment like we can argue that um like apple is, it seems to be like a little bit behind in ai i mean if you look at where siri is at right now compared to where chat gpt is at uh you know it's not even a contest um, and one can argue that like perhaps Apple is in that position because it has taken more of a privacy stance on, on, uh, on user products. And by virtue of that has not been able to get as much proprietary data off of its customers as other big tech companies have. And if they didn't have that strategy, maybe they would have been able to make more progress. I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely speculating here, but there's a narrative we can. Does it matter though? Like if, like if Apple has the best hardware and you're like running like your local chatbot with your own AI model on your phone, like does Apple have to be the one with the best AI software, or do they just have to be the one with the best hardware to run it? I mean, I do think it matters in the sense that Apple is a player, and they're losing. Yeah, they're definitely behind. That's for sure. I guess just going on, just to close out the moat discussion, Jake, so it sounds like from your discussion, like a lot of the moat comes from the proprietary data side. Is that is that kind of a fair fair summation? Um, yeah, I mean I, I think you can you could characterize it that way. I mean, like most most neural networks, like the reason that they become powerful is is because they process a lot of data and they can train a lot. Yeah. So I would say those folks who are able to maximize and also compute um those kinds of volumes of data are gonna are gonna obviously have better outcomes for performance of these things do you think it's like ultra defensible long term like it, it seems like most of the world is going from proprietary data to like free data but or data that's online but I guess the counter to that is like the data reclamation you're pointing to is where people were pulling their data offline. I'm not exactly sure where there will be a, a stronger push for like prop data or open well, data. It's kind of confusing to me. A lot of people argue that, you know, LLMs will actually not get that intelligent because we'll hit a bottleneck on the data dimension. 
Like they'll argue that chat GPT or GPT-4 is already trained on such a large data set that already contains all the public data on the internet and, you know, and more that it's going to be really hard to produce a data set that's like an order of magnitude bigger than that or something. And so we're already seeing diminishing returns uh, to how smart these models could be based on this bottleneck. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly where I am on that. I think, I think one thing that that view might be discounting is like how much proprietary, how big proprietary data actually is. But the trade-off is that like proprietary data might be like a lot more specialized toward some, you know, some market or, or, or goal or something like that. That's a, that's a fair point. Jake, just to switch gears a bit, I want to go to the crypto and AI overlap a bit more. You already mentioned a couple of things like you're pretty excited about, like the data sovereignty side and the transparency and alignment and training side. I think those are like good foundational areas. I wanted to chat a little bit about WorldCoin and your your view on the interplay with crypto. I'm not sure where you want to take this, but I'd love to hear maybe your higher level thoughts on the interplay between WorldCoin, AI, crypto. Um, yeah, so so WorldCoin is Sam's other uh, project that he co-founded, like you know, w- within Web three. I would say uh, we are investors there. I think WorldCoin is a super interesting project because it solves one of the most difficult problems of decentralization technology, which is the ability to say that like one, um, you know, one address belongs to a one unique human. Um, in other words, proof of personhood. Uh, the WorldCoin orb, which is a device, physical device, scans your irises and produces kind of a unique address based on your biometrics um, uses AI internally uh, as part of the process to do that. And, and I think that like, there's a really interesting angle here because in a world of AI where AI is very prevalent and AI is in the form of like chat bots on the internet and, and deep fakes and virtual influencers and stuff like that, there's good, you know, there's a huge public interest uh, in knowing what kind of content has been produced by humans and what kind of content has been produced by AIs. Uh, and I think WorldCoin is part of that story. It's kind of crazy how much hate they got early on, right? Like, a couple, even I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, this guy's going around scanning everyone's eyes. It's dystopian. And then I started researching AI more, and I'm like, how else do we solve civil, res- like, you know, how else do we solve the civil problem? Well, the simple problem, people have been trying to solve it in many different ways. Um, I just happen to think that each one of those ways has a certain like margin of error, which, uh, which kind of like allows attacks onto, onto those networks. But, but the world coin margin of error is probably, you know, the smallest one out of all the solutions. And that's kind of the, the point. What's your second favorite solution to figuring out the difference between a human and an AI outside of WorldCoin? Like, is there anything that was a, a solid runner-up for you that you thought could be a you potential know, meeting solution? someone for coffee is a good, <laughs> a good, a good way <laughs> to do fair. it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I guess it's hard to scale all those interactions, but so it sounds like it's pretty hard to do outside WorldCoin. Though it sounds like this is. Kind of, in your view, the, the well, best way. To there's a few projects out. out there who have taken kind of a DAO approach. They'll say, "Okay, like Jake and Tom are going to be the first two members of the DAO, and then like to you know to give someone else a unique ID, uh, they have to vote that person in, and so they'll do like the due diligence, and you know they'll meet that person for coffee, or they'll meet him on video, and they'll ascertain that they're a unique human, and then they'll let them into the DAO." And invariably, those kinds of systems eventually get tricked by, you know, one or two or three or four, uh, you know, attackers. And then the more attackers that come into the system, the more likely that the system will admit more attackers. And so that margin of error starts to balloon and, and kind of make the system unworkable. 
I mean, once you have a couple of robots in there, the whole system goes down, right? Because then they could just admit new robots and the whole system is pointless. I guess switching gears, Jake, again, as we hit almost everything we can on AI in one episode, <laughs> um, I guess like investing in crypto now, are you looking for projects that are aggressively leveraging AI? I mean, I, I know it's like super early and there aren't a, a ton of overlap right now, but are you looking for projects that are leveraging AI in any meaningful way or are you pretty open to investing in crypto as you were previously? Well, I think that I think that on the intersection, there's there's been two ways that that crypto and, and Web three have been converging. Like, like one way is that Web three companies might start to use AI or chatbots in certain ways, and I've certainly seen like a lot of projects kind of put forward the idea that like they want to have an LLM that teaches people, for example, about their product. So one one good example would be Urbit. Uh, who I know, I know you're familiar with them too, Tom. Uh, but they have this kind of esoteric programming language, and one of the ideas in the ecosystem is that you know if you had an LLM who actually could produce code in that language and could explain to you how that code works, that's going to go a long way to helping people onboard, you know, onto Un programming and Urbit. So you know we've seen sort of AI coming to Web three. That's one way that they converge. And then the other way that they converge is like Web3 um, supports the infrastructure of AI. So these are more things like um, kind of decentralized networks that train models, decentralized networks that provide model inference or put the models on the blockchain um, or create marketplaces where people can buy AI outputs and so forth. Um, and that's more like Web3 serving the AI space. So those are kind of the two the two ways that you know it's likely to happen. I'm sorry, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, no, you did. It's just trying to figure out the interplay between the two. All right, Jake, we could spend the rest of the convo on the fun stuff. I want to focus on dystopian views. Um I'll 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 throw one at you and we could take this wherever you want, but one of the main debates right now is do people around the world lose their jobs as AI takes over? You know, a lot of jobs. What What is your view on this? Do you think that as AI develops, people will be out of work? Or do you think that it unlocks, you know, the time for us to do the experiential things that we want and we leverage AI in a way that drives even more output? Like, what do you, which side are you on? on that? I mean, case? I think that like, you got, you got to look at every area with facts and circumstances. But, you know, one thing that I heard a lot of hysteria on is, image models, obsoleting creatives. Um, but now that I've got a chance, I've gotten a chance to play with like Photoshop. Like I just don't see, like, I, I think it's a, it's an incredible tool that augments artistic processes. Like I could create stuff that I could never create before with, you know, so rapidly that I could never even do that before. Um, and that actually motivates me as a creative person to, you know, I don't know, create more like digital art or something. And, and the nature of that art is more sophisticated and interesting than it was before. So kind of like, at least in that area, like I would say generative image models are going to be game changing for the efficiency of, you know, creative, creative outputs. And I, and I feel that like very viscerally as someone, you know, who does create digital art uh, at times. Um, but I also see how, you know, like language models can obsolete um, certain areas like pretty dramatically. Like, um, like I, as I mentioned, like I really, I really love learning languages with, with chat GPT. And for example, you know, when you're learning a new language, one of the, one of the best ways to do that is to be next to a native speaker and sort of have them force you to talk to them in that language. And then whenever you make a mistake, they correct you. And that short feedback loop, I think, is extremely effective at helping people learn. But not everyone has access to a native speaker. And in fact, there's you know iPhone apps and marketplaces galore where you could hire native speakers to teach you and to converse with you. But now you can also do that on ChatGPT. You can um, I've actually 
tweeted a bunch about this of like how to how to set up a you know essentially a chat bot that for that you know makes you speak Spanish to it and will give you corrections when you make mistakes. So when I think about that functionality being put next to like what language learning software looks like today, I just don't see how that software is going to continue to to survive, right? When you have such a more sophisticated tool uh, that is a that is a language model, and I think like all these like language companies are starting to like kind of integrate AI, but ultimately these things are pretty easy to write on top of like ChatGPT, and I can even see them being open source. I can see them being like totally free software that teaches people language, and that means like that whole area could experience a significant shock in terms of, you know, like losing relevance or, or being marketable. So, you know, I, it depends. It sounds like though, from what you're saying, like most people are kind of afraid because they haven't experienced it. And then in the Photoshop example, like their AI is, is lowering the barriers to adoptions. Like even if you don't know how to use Photoshop, you can go type in this and make edits. And then for like the experts, they could just use it to be even, even more creative. So it, it kind of sounds like people are just writing more code, and you know they're just keeping yeah, their exactly. Jobs. I think like people who couldn't express themselves visually before will have a much greater ability and opportunity to express themselves visually. Um, you know, in that in that example. Yeah, that is. I, I had dinner recently with a buddy in AI, and I'm happy to give him credit for this if he lets me afterward. But he basically told me that. You know, if you're like bunny hopping on technologies, like if you give everybody in emerging countries, everyone in Africa, a phone with ChatGPT on it, like, can you imagine the productivity of just the earth in total? And it is kind of wild to think about just completely skipping over, you know, so many different technologies and having that in your pocket. I, I don't even know what the gravity of that would be or if it's even possible, but maybe this plays it to your point on or the, just the points on higher productivity. I mean, just to wax philosophical for a second, you know, historically, you know, humans have generally kind of like learned one area. You know, you went, you go to college, you have the, you know, a major, right? And then you go into some industry and you work in that industry. There's a few humans here and there who are very like, uh, you know, Renaissance people and they, they're, they're artists and mathematicians at the same time. But I think what the internet does and what things like LLMs and assistants do is that they give all humans an enhanced ability in all areas, right? So like if I'm a tech guy, but I know less about, I don't know, traditional art history, I now have a tool that like very quickly allows me to navigate art history. And that tool is, was like Google and 2005 and now it's something like chat gpt which is even better because i can interrogate it about particular subjects and and so forth so i i think i think um ai technology is a way of making people like omniproductive right like <laughs> like giving them the ability to navigate all fields it is pretty crazy like the edge just comes down to how good your prompts are and i guess how how much you integrate into your workflows right i if everybody has it, someone expressed the a view that like LLMs will be great for people who are idea people. You know, like like in the past, idea people had ideas, but ideas are not worth very much if you can't execute on them. With a with an LLM, you not only can test your ideas, but you could also like ask the LLM like, oh, by the way, and, you know, if I wanted to start and register a crypto fund, how would I go about doing? First, you need a business plan, and then you need to incorporate, and then you need to do this, and then you need to do that. And you can follow you know, those steps and, and kind of get much farther uh, you know, toward that goal. Jake, if you're going to put us both out of business, we got to do it when I'm not recording because that's a good idea. It's helpful. Jake, this has been awesome. I, it's fun to kind of chat and just muse about all the different areas of AI. We hopped around a bunch and uh, I just really appreciate you coming on. It's really fun to talk about this awesome. stuff. Awesome. I love talking about this stuff um, and I am super excited about what we're going to 
uh, achieve on the intersection of Web3 and AI. And definitely check out our blog post about that uh, on blog.coinfund.io. It's called Open Neural Networks, the Intersection of Web3 and uh, AI. Have you done any rabbit hole talk, shake that people could listen to on AI? Is that an up-and-coming thing or something on um, the agenda? Well, rabbit hole talks usually we do um, for our portfolio companies, but I've been on a number of podcasts, including this one. Um, the last one was Jason Choi's podcast, which uh, I think was one of the more coherent ones. Yeah, so check that one out as well. Awesome, Jake. Thanks so much, man. I really appreciate your time. Cool, Tom. Thank you. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on.